Psalm 144. Psalm 144 will be my text. I'll be reading and then preaching on the nature and what a vision of Christ's kingdom looks like on earth and how we ought to sing and pray and labor for that great objective of the righteous rule of Christ on earth. Psalm 144. I'll read the psalm in its entirety. Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth mine hands to fight and my fingers to battle. He is my goodness and my fortress, my tower and my deliverer, my shield, and him I trust, which subdueth my people under me. Lord, what is man that thou regardest him, or the son of man that thou thinkest upon him? Man is like to vanity. His days are like a shadow that vanisheth. Bow down thine heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Cast forth the lightning, and scatter them. Shoot out thine arrows, and consume them. Send thine hand from above. Deliver me, and take me out of the great waters, and from the hand of strangers, whose mouth talketh vanity. And their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song unto thee, O God, and sing unto thee upon a vial and an instrument of ten strings. It is he that giveth deliverance unto kings and rescueth David his servant from the hurtful sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of strangers whose mouth talketh vanity. And their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be as the plants growing up in their youth and our daughters as the cornerstones graven after the similitude of a palace, that our corners may be full and abounding with divers sorts and that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be none invasion, nor going out, nor no crying in our streets. Blessed are the people that be so, yea, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray for the richest blessing of a God upon the preaching of his word. Lord, we ask this morning that you would, by your spirit, bless the preaching of your word. That you would not exalt any man, but that you would exalt the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is our king who has given us marching orders as to how we are to labor, how we are to work, how we are to worship and pray, and what we are to work and labor and pray and worship towards. We pray all of this then in your name. Amen. I love pulling out the Geneva Bible every once in a while just to keep you on your toes and to remind you, man, I don't know if I know the word quite as much as I used to, or at least this version of it. Um, it's a challenge in many ways because it requires you to concentrate, and that's what we're after. Our responsibility as those who are called by Christ to plant his church on earth uh, must realize that we have been called to a glorious and holy thing indeed. Now, for many years, as a child who grew up in the church, I was told, and rightly so, the value of holiness and personal piety that you are to pursue as much as you are able sinlessness not perfection in this life we are not nazarites or methodists 
We are Presbyterians, and we understand rightly so that even as we strive for holiness in this life, we will always fall short until Christ comes and mortifies sin, either in our death or in his second coming. But there is a mission, and that mission is essential. And so I always thought, all right, I'm, I'm trying to do the holiness part, but for what reason? In this way, if you get dressed up, you always do so for a reason, right? If you look at all the old movies and TV shows from the 40s and 50s, it seemed like they got dressed up all the time. Men were wearing three-piece suits and hats everywhere. That is not the culture in which we live today. Some of that I'm grateful for. Uh, it certainly simplifies the wardrobe so that you can just wear sweats and shorts, I guess, a lot. But many of us in the church have been told, pursue holiness, get dressed up, but to what end? Is that merely the objective? Individual and corporate holiness? Or are we worshiping, praying for Christ to come in our hearts and among us as a church for something greater even than that? Now, the reason I've been preaching through the Psalms and the... As cliche as this sounds, the burden that has been laid upon my heart for the past two and a half, three years now is the church has been selling the first part of the Great Commission, but not the second part. They've been selling the be holy even as I am holy, but not the go forth and take dominion of all the nations. Because that's someone else's responsibility. And I ask, well, who's? If not the church, who does that belong to? And David here in Psalm 144 is giving the church a song that we are to sing that puts God in his rightful place. It puts the saint in his rightful place. Our relationship with the world in its proper place and what we are after as the objective of all of our labors. And it is this. It is happiness. It is prosperity, but it is covenantal happiness, and it is covenantal prosperity. That is what I want to look at as we look at the marching orders given to us by God, two points that I want to make. Let me be honest. I'm rambling a little bit because I'm really excited about this topic, and I ramble a lot when I get really excited. So bear with me. I'm going to try to, if I have to do two parts, we'll do two parts, but... Let's just move through this clear, uh, uh, quickly but hopefully effectively. Number one, someone to love and fight for. Yes, I know that ends with a preposition, but it's not a sentence. It's a heading. It's a title. You can do that, right, when you're preaching. Someone to love and fight for, and then secondly, how and where we are going. Now, let's look at this first point, someone to love and fight for. This Psalm of David is written by a king. And he is writing it as a king to be sung by his people whom he understands to be in covenant with the Lord. And this is what he teaches them to sing. Blessed be the Lord my rock. I'm going to read now from the New King James so you can better understand it. <laughs> Who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. David was a warrior king. Not only did he slay Goliath, the sort of 
covenantal representative of the Philistine army when he was just a young man with a sling and then obviously Goliath's own sword. But he also drove out the nation of Philistia from the land of Egypt and liberated them from their idolatrous pagan rule. They had afflicted Israel long enough. David understood that that call to go to war was the Lord's call. Now the church is still a militant institution. Now we do not fight as the nations fight for the sake of the church We fight with the word of God that is the sword of the spirit and it is the word of God that divides and conquers. But nonetheless, the psalmist would have the church, the company of saints, understand that we are a militant people and we fight not only against untruth that is in this sort of cerebral theological realm but we also wage war against false practices so that it is not merely conceptual but it is practical David a warrior king wishes for the saints of God to prepare for battle and battle for whom for whose sake well for the king Even though David is a king, he is not the ultimate king. He is a king under another king of whom he describes in verse 2, my loving kindness and my fortress. He is speaking now of the one that he mentions the first part of verse 1, blessed be the Lord my rock. The Lord is his loving kindness and fortress. The Lord is his high tower and deliverer. The Lord is his shield and the one in whom he took refuge, who subdued people under him. In order for us to understand who we are, even now, as royal priests of a kingdom, we must understand that our first allegiance, our first fear is not to the world or to the ones who live in the world, but to Christ who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth. Now, this is the way C.S. Lewis puts it. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself, unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Sometimes Lewis is so elementary, it's offensive in his logic. That in order to be equipped for battle, we must contemplate God as he is, revealed in his word and not of our own making. If we wish to be faithful We must be people of the sword, and I would add to that, of the string. Now, what do I mean, of the sword and the string? Well, I mean of the the sword and the trowel. That is, we are those who are called to battle, but we are also called to worship. And when I say worship, here I mean specifically joining together as an army of God in song, in worship, And I don't just mean a life of devotion. I mean a life of corporate worship together. 
when militaries would march into battle, they would often march into battle at the beat of a drum or the sound of a song. And the reason for that then was twofold, to increase morale and tempo in marching. And both of those things are illustrations of what the church ought to be doing. We sing for the sake of emboldening our hearts. We sing Psalm 144 not only for the sake of instruction, but inspiration and encouragement. But we're also singing the same song so that we might be unified in how we march against the kingdom of darkness and for the kingdom of Christ. We should be singing the same songs. And so in order to be good and faithful fighters, we must be wholly devoted to God. We must sing his word in order to effectively wage war against ungodliness and to defend the innocent and the righteous. We seek to be better equipped, to have our hands and fingers trained, to have our hearts filled with praise and adoration of the Lord, it is not unmanly, it is not weak to use this kind of language for a man to say, my loving kindness, as you speak of the covenant faithfulness of God. It speaks of his faithfulness. We need a shield, we need a tower, we need a deliverer because in this fight we cannot make it, we cannot win, we cannot accomplish anything on our own. Which is the point that David makes next in verses 3 and 4. Lord, what is man that you should knowledge him, take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. So David is putting the saints in their proper place. And not only that, but he is showing the saints how they are to think of the world. Now, years ago when I was in seminary, I was told this illustration by one of my professors, the late Harold O.J. Brown, a scholar, a first-rate scholar, four earned degrees from Harvard, not one of those they just give you because, you know, you are famous. And while he was there, there was a, a professor who told the story of, a, of the head of this psychology department at a very liberal university. And they were building this brand new wing for the school of psychology. And as they were doing it, they polled the student body. What sort of mantra should we have on the, the keystone above the doorway into this new beautiful college? And a vote was taken, and this was their consensus. Man is the measure of all things. You know this is what? The humanist credo. Well, the head of this department did not like it. And so while the students were away at summer, he changed it. What is man that you are mindful of him? What the world has done is they have inverted the glory of man over the glory of God. Now men have glory Right? Man has been placed over creation, but our glory is subject to, it is secondary to, and there's quite a distance between God and man. So if we are to go out into battle, as David approaches Goliath, it is very easy to see Goliath and go, nope, nope, I'm going to go, I'd rather fight a bear. 
or a lion, <laughs> but not Goliath. None in Israel would go. But what is man that you are mindful of him? David saw Goliath as just a what? I've said it before, a big target. That's the world. That not only is this perspective that we are made after the image of God and that he is high and that we are low, this grants to the saint confidence to go to him for help. But it also teaches us that as we go out into battle that the ones that we are going out against are just men. They're not God's. That Satan, even in the demons, are subject to the authority of Christ. There is no power on earth that can withstand the march of the church through Christ by his spirit at work in the world. We fail when we cease to march. And we cease marching when we have misguided notions about the way the kingdom comes to earth and when we are afraid. But we were made by someone for something and we receive our marching orders, our identity from the one who made us. And we go to war for Christ. He is the someone that we are to love. He is the someone that we are to labor for and fight for. And so, worship of God must always contemplate two things. The glory, provision, and calling of Yahweh, God. And second, contemplating the humility, need, and responsibility of men. Who God is and who we are. And you know something the world does not know. That we were made for much more than 75 years of grueling labor and then death. What's the point? Really, what is the point? If your bank account is the point, then I can understand why there is so much despair and psychosomatic drug use in the West. Because we are doping ourselves into a reality that only the spirit can bring. And that is understanding that there is something greater than what we see with our physical eyes and can touch with our hands. We live in a desperate culture because we have become untethered from eternity. All the while knowing eternity is in our hearts. We have become duped and strangers to our high and holy calling. And so, what are we to do? We are to sing psalms like this. We are to sing doxology, blessing of the one who has called us to fight. Fight for his glory, because look at his glory in verse 2. Look at the humility and the weakness and the smallness of men, such that, this is the petition that comes next, verses 5 through 8. Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me, deliver me. 
from the hands of the water or the hands of foreigners in great waters, whose mouths speak lying words, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. This is the world. All that they do is against the kingdom of righteousness. And they ally themselves against Christ and his people. And we pray in light of God's glorious nature and his character. Do this. Now how has Christ promised to do this? Through his church. So I ask you the question. When David asks, bow down your heavens, how is Christ fulfilling that petition now? Are you waiting for Christ to literally appear in bodily form in such a way that all men see and go, whoa, well, that will come one day. But did not Christ walk on the earth? Was he not in bodily form? And how many looked at Christ, saw his miracles, heard his preaching, and yet they hardened their hearts towards him? When we pray this prayer now in this country and in the West and really in this sort of modern world of fast, now, microwave Christianity, we say, Lord, would you just rapture us out of the world and get this thing done so that we don't have to do it anymore? Because we don't want to fight. As someone says, everybody wants to go to war, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes. That's where we are. We don't even want to go to war, let alone do the dishes. We have become, in many ways, a feckless and lazy congregation. I'm not speaking about Reformation. I'm talking about the church in the modern world because we think things are owed to us because we have lived in such peace. We think that this is the way that it will always be and that we can stop fighting and it will stay that way. And it won't. Why? Because there are always those like Gashmu, if you don't know who Gashmu is, go look him up, who will say false things about the church and seek to undermine her reputation by lies. How then do we combat the lies of the world? We tell more truth than they tell lies. We speak the truth more openly, more regularly, more boldly than they speak lies. Don't let the tail wag the dog. Worship is a, it's not a no-spin zone, but it is the proper spin. It is a proper perspective. The worship is the opportunity of the church to market itself before the world as the institution of Christ's glory and grace. And that apart from Christ, you have no hope. Secondly, how and where we are going. Again, we must understand man and God. God in his proper place, man in his. Calvin begins his Institutes of Christian Religion in this way. Nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. 
But while joined by many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. And then he also says, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends. Parents, in your home, your children need to encounter the living God if they are to understand their place in the world. Who God is, which is why every catechism, every confession begins with the word and then the doctrine of God, the doctrine of redemption, and man. Man must be in their proper place. God, verse 2, man, verse 3 and 4, a prayer in light of those two realities, and then a response, having prayed for deliverance, verses 9 and 10, confident of the Lord's deliverance, a benediction, or rather a doxology. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David, that's his, he's himself, the king, his servant, from the deadly sword. This is God's battle. And just as Satan brings demons and men into his battle, Christ brings angels and men into his battle. And there are these two families, and they are at war. They are at enmity, Genesis chapter 3. And that enmity is real. And even though it is a principalities and powers enmity, it is fleshed out, it is seen in this life where we can see it. God has a mission that belongs to him by right of his nature. He has an identity. He has an authority. Matthew chapter 28 All authority, Christ says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But there is also a mission and responsibility that Christ has given to the church. We see it in Genesis 3. We see it in Genesis 8 and 9. We see it in Matthew chapter 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Go into all the world and make disciples. Those two things go together. Conquer in the name of Christ. This is what I mean when I say the word Christendom. Now, this word has fallen out of fashion, and that is to our detriment. It was actually taken out of our hymnal, which is also a bad decision, but that's okay, right? Those are the kinds of decisions that are made by people who produce hymnals, which is why when we sing Luther's hymn, Lord, Keep Us Steadfast, I copy it in the bulletin. Hymnals make all kinds of editorial choices. Don't edit that word from your vocabulary. What is Christendom? Christendom is the conquering of the truth of Christ over untruth unto the blessing of all men. Children, have you all had braces? Braces are a manifestation of the order of righteousness on earth. It's literally orthodontics. And I have a special place in my heart for that prefix, ortho. Some of you may, as Orthodox Presbyterian, Presbyterians. What else is part of Christendom? Well, I saw a film the other night in which these two divers went into this cave. It was a film as a reflection on, you know, when the Thai soccer team got trapped in that cave for like 21 days. 
and they went 2,500 meters underwater in a cave to this place where these boys had been staying because they could not swim out, obviously. It took seven, almost eight hours just to get to that place where they were waiting. <laughs> and they gave each boy regular shots of ketamine, put a breathing mask over their face, and swam them 2,500 meters to safety. That's Christendom. Now, it's not the same, and I think we need to be clear, as when a sinner is converted and the Spirit awakens him from death. But both, both are reflections of the order that Christ brings when he comes down and dwells among us by his Spirit. And these are big, this is a big mission fulfilled with countless little steps. This parking lot is a small step. This beautiful, these beautiful pebbles that were laid out is a small step. Every fellowship meal, every conversation, every act of love, every cup of cold water, they're imperceivable in the whole universe of things. But it is all part of God using his called people to manifest his glory by triumphing over evil, verses three through or five through ten, who deliver us, who delivers us from the deadly sword, who rescues us, verse eleven, so that. What is the so that? What are we actually laboring for? Just to do it all over again? Well, yeah, if we need to. Because we're going to have to do it all over again. Because we ceded territory. We have ceded ground. But we need to take that ground back. And we do it by prayer. We do it by worship. And we pray specifically for deliverance unto this end. What is that end? That God would silence those who lie. Verse 9 through 11. And look at verse 12. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculpted in palace style. In case you wondered what palatia meant in the Geneva translation. That our children's lives are blessed because Christ has conquered the fruit of unrighteousness. Let me give you a very real example of the children who will not die in the womb through unrighteous laws. That's the first step to thriving. You have to be alive to enjoy it. But beyond that, what are we doing? Well, what we have done oftentimes as a church in our pietism is we no longer think generationally. We think personally and existentially. And we say, my holiness my holiness, but to what end? What are we getting dressed up for? So that our families may be blessed. Specifically, so that our young men may grow. What is stunting young men right now? I know you know the list. Debt, pornography, what else? This false concept of adolescence, what is adolescence? It's just a lie you tell yourself, parents, for why your kids haven't grown up yet. 
right? 13, that's manhood. Treat them like men. Treat them like men. And provide for them the nourishment, the ingredients for them to grow. How does a young man grow? You heap upon him the responsibility of the covenant so that he can stand back. Like when my son puts a Lego set together and goes, I did that. Now that's just following the instructions. But then over time, he gets so good at putting these components together, he can build these glorious, beautiful, complex sets that came from his own mind. He did that. And what that strategizing does is it one day gives way to real stone, real cultural engagement, real societal benefit. But they must grow. Right now we live in a culture that shames men for being men. For being strong. And women for wanting homes and to be mothers. Such that our daughters, verse 12, may be as pillars. Now what is a pillar? What's a good pillar? See, we have columns in our fellowship hall. They're just steel structures that have been painted. These are palace pillars. When you go to the Capitol and you see those Greek, uh, Greco-Roman architecture and the pillars that are there, you could stand and study the pillars because they're not only strong at the weight they carry, but they are so intricately designed. Not weakness, not utility, but beautiful strength. That is what we want in our daughters. Where does that beautiful strength come from? It comes from the word of God shaping hearts. From whom do they learn? Well, what does Paul say? Older women teach younger women. Someone must carve that intricate beauty work. The reliefs, all of that must be done by someone who knows a master craftsman. According to what standard, though? Well, to the word of God, the doctrine that David has already laid out. And so the first ingredient is worship. The second is prayer. The third is to take the word of God and to stamp it down, press it down on all of life. And what is the result of growing sons and strong and beautiful daughters All kinds of stuff. Full barns. Thousands of sheep. That is the supply of what is needed. What do mature men and strong women bring? Household wealth. Strong churches. Churches that have all of these volunteers who run around in such a way that if there is a need, it gets met because they feel the burden. Because their hearts are in the church and with their neighbors. That our oxens may be well laden. That's just a real, that's just a fat ox, right? You know what fat oxes are? Delicious. (laughs) And not only that, but they can really pull carts. And they can get that thing right now, whose name I can't remember, that, that tills a field. I don't know what you... I, I, a plow! Oh, it's one of those days. And they can pull it deep to bring up that rich soil. 
There will be no breaking in or going out. And there will be no outcry in the streets. There will be a decrease in the violence that is found in our streets. What is the great litmus test of our rebellion today? Unfettered violence against innocence. What David is outlining for us is not some mystical sci-fi fantasy community because oftentimes the church reads this and say, boy, oh boy, I can't wait till Christ comes back and this can be true. It can be true. Now, it can only be true insofar as we are able as those who are in authority punish wicked, you know, wickedness and evildoers. But there will always be wickedness. There will always be evil. It will always require striving and nurturing But our goal is what? Well, first, before we get to that, let me say this. In reform circles, we often think of the glory of the church as something historical and not eschatological. Oh, if I could just go back to the day when Calvin walked through Geneva, who died at 56, (laughs) in a tiny little church, In a pretty cool city, nonetheless, there was a time where John Knox and John Calvin were preaching on opposite ends of the street. That's pretty cool. But we speak often of glory as something past. And this is what old men do, right? Well, back in my day. Well, okay. What's different? Things got... In the days of Noah, things were terrible. There were half God, half human beings, half angelic Nephilim walking the earth. And God called this man to build an ark. And he brought judgment upon the whole world. Those were bad days. Or when Israel goes into the promised land and he calls them to take that land. And it's full of what? Giant, literal giants. Lord, someone will speak ill of me on social media if if I speak up for your name or I may get fired. The HR department may call me in and I may lose my job. What will I do? And Christ says what? Take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy. Blessed are you when you suffer much for my sake. Or to think of, of Peter who, when released from prison, worshiped not because he was released, though I'm sure he was happy about that, but that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. We ought not seek ease. My point isn't that we are seeking an age in which we can rest on our laurels, but that we ought to always be setting before ourselves this glorious vision of a land in which our children can flourish, but it must be fought for. And if we ever get to achieve it in our own lives, we must fight to keep it. And the way that we do that, the way that we reach this state, verse 15, happy are the people who are in such a state, happy are the people whose God is the Lord, is that we recognize how we got there. We want to be happy, but we don't want to be holy. That's why we lose it. The only way to get to joy 
And into such a state is that we pursue the glory of Christ and we stamp down upon all men, sometimes begrudgingly, the proper perspective of God and men and how we are all called to worship him. And we have been given everything we need to do this task. We know what the problem is. We know what the remedy is. We now know what success looks like. And up until a point, we will be successful in this mission according to God's providence. Here's how I want us to do it. Show the world worship. If you cannot show them proper worship, you will never show them proper devotion. Show the world what true worship and faithfulness looks like and then teach the world how to faithfully worship. Show them and then explain to them how they can do it. Those videos, you know, that you see on YouTube, the instructional videos of where someone does this incredible thing, whether it's a, something in sports, some dance move, some wood cutting. I, I follow a lot of these sort of carpentry things how do they do that and I watch it seven or eight times and I still don't understand it what I need is for someone to come to my house and to hold my hands and say this is how you move your hands (laughs) this is what it means to disciple the nations this is where we're going this is how we get there now this is how you do it this is it if the world doesn't see us worship they'll never know start with your children Continue in your church, go into your community, and then spread out into all the world. That is how we will build a state of holy joy. This is how the world will know what it's like to be blessed by him. Let us pray. Lord, our God.